0: Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Garrett Bucks. Garrett is the founder of the Barn Raisers Project, which trains white people who don't think of themselves as activists on how to welcome their communities and networks into the work of justice and liberation. He's also the creator of The White Pages, a newsletter about white people's relationship both to racism and to each other. He's from Montana, but lives in Milwaukee now with his wife and two kids. Garrett, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Ryan. Thanks so much. So Garrett,
0: how did you first get interested in the work you're doing today?
1: Well, I've been a white person my whole life. So that's helped a lot, right? I often say that my trajectory is pretty like cookie cutter, white dooger. And in that, you know, I was raised by parents that, bless their hearts, in a really wonderful way, raised me to have a social consciousness, care about the world. And I think implicitly, I just always assumed that that meant my work as a white middle class person was in other people's communities. So I lived and taught on the Navajo Reservation. I taught refugees in Chicago. I ended up being a nonprofit director in Milwaukee, which is a majority black Latinx and Hmong city. So I did all of these, you know, took all these roles that were, I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to help others, which you know, there's a, there's a lot of positives about that. There's a lot that's also loaded about that. So that's the first way that I was a white do-gooder. The second way that I was a pretty typical white do-gooder was that as a white guy in particular, I, not only did I assume my work was in other people's communities, but I didn't really question that I would get to be a quote unquote leader in other people's communities, right? That I, a white guy from Montana would be founding a branch of a nonprofit in Milwaukee, right? In a city where I didn't grow up and it wasn't my community and working with school kids here in schools that I didn't myself attend. So, and then the next stage, I think I was a pretty typical white do-gooder was that I, you know, I had an intellectual, you know, I went to a liberal arts college, so I read all the right books. And I, I think I had an intellectual concern for equity and justice and anti-racism and things like that. But it didn't really become real for me very embarrassingly until I had to be told by people around me, friends, colleagues, in particular people who worked for me, disproportionately women of color, that it was pretty awful working with and being around me. And it was pretty awful being around me in pretty typical white guy ways. And I'm deeply grateful for those conversations. And I am glad that I worked as much as possible being non-defensive in taking their feedback and changing what i was doing that then you know and this is it, it, just to situate this in timeline i think in particular around the middle of the last decade so around 2015 2016 i was getting some of this feedback and i did the last kind of step that i think of as being a pretty typical white do-gooder step which was once For whatever reason, you get more fired up of like, oh, darn it. I got to change my ways. I've got to be more anti-racist that I, you know, had, I already defined my work as being not in the communities I came from, but in other people's communities. But now it was even more essential, you know, just implicitly that I separate myself from other white people that whiteness was bad that because we are racist and we caused harm. And I felt so guilty and so shameful both for your broad historical legacies of that and one on one for not living to my own values and for hurting people I cared about. And so in attempting to correct for that, and I did a lot of the things that we often see white people who are quote unquote fired up about anti-racism doing, right? I tried to cleave relationships with folks that I thought, uh, were particularly bad white people. I became more sanctimonious and screedy in how I was talking about and in particular writing about this work. Went through a really good phase of some real barn burner Facebook essays, right? And did a lot of that. And probably got, you know, I don't want to admit this, but pretty addicted to you know, seeking validation from people of color that I was part of the gang, that I wasn't, uh, you know, like all those other white people. And I had this, I situated this around 2016 or so, right? Which is, of course, the most cliche moment for a white liberal to be having some sort of existential crisis about the state of things with Trump's election. But heck, I, I had my version of that too. And I think in the midst of all of this kind of ritualized self-cleanse on my own part, I, for some reason or another, I took a look out on the world and just looked through the layers of what I was seeing and realizing that everything I was doing wasn't really changing anything. And Because I was realizing that, I realized like, oh, this isn't really for anyone else at all. I'm, I'm doing all this just for myself and my own ego and my own attempt to not feel badly about things. You know, I was, I was looking at, you know, immediately the work I was doing as an education and I was thinking, wow, billions of dollars have been pumped into like education nonprofits that are quote unquote trying to like, help black and brown schools, Um, but we're not really interested at all in the choices that white parents and white teachers are making that restrict the number of choices that black, brown, and indigenous educators even have to create the schools that they dream of, right? I was looking at the national political context and thinking, you know, not only is my self-righteous as a white liberal not really changing anything, it's not preventing the rise of Trumpism. The more I understand about the rise of Trumpism, it seems like there is a circular firing squad going on between white liberals and white conservatives that the more we scold, the more they become emboldened, uh, in their own politics. And I feel like we're almost all just holding the rest of the country hostage in our like internecine white people fight. Um, and I looked at my own life and I was like, I, I have all of these scattered relationships, both relationships with you know, black, brown, indigenous folks that were probably more transactional than I wanted to because implicitly there was part of them that I was seeking in those relationships approval. And then all of these strained relationships with white folks in the places I came from and was raised and realized like that emptiness too. Um And it all added up that, goodness, you know, this kind of quest for self-absolution isn't really changing anything. And that led me to the question of, you know, what if something about this quest to help other people's community was the wrong question. And instead, I should have started from the question of what is my community? What people in particular am I responsible to uh, and are responsible to me? What does it look like to take accountability for that for that community? And so my work with other white people uh, started from both epiphany than that beer that I, I might have been spending a whole lot of time on the wrong track.
0: It's so great to hear you say that because I feel like so much of our perception like you said around like where do we go to to as a white liberal maybe early in the journey at least my perception was I want to be around like black and brown voices who are leading and sort of like in those communities and really like understanding and learning but it was sort of like as a way to get away from the white communities that I had grown up in and was a part of and it's so interesting because if you ask like black or brown activists, you know, maybe queer black women, for example, who are like on the front edges, like, who should I work with? Like, go work with other white people. Why are you like, like, of course, like be here, but also like, why are you avoiding your own people? Like, so we think that the answer is by seeking proximity to blackness or or other folks of color, but it's like sort of, we need help in our own communities.
1: That Request has been happening for decades, right? When Stokely Carmichael became head of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee from from King, the first thing he did was say to all the white folks who had come down for Freedom Summer and the Freedom Rides and things like that that gracious said Thank you for coming, but I need you going back to your communities now. And implicit in that invitation is two different things, right? That you have to be ready ready to be able to to actually accept that invitation. You have to be ready to. Fully, fully step over your biases in two different ways as a white person. The first is you have to step over your bias of paternalism, right? That, you know, implicit in my assumption that my work was to come and, you know, be a teacher or work in nonprofits in black, brown, indigenous schools. Implicit in that is like, there's something wrong here. Uh, that and the solution doesn't exist in those communities already. The solution, even if I wasn't going to say this out loud, implicit you know, is that like the solution involves me inserting myself into someplace else, which is you know. Pretty darn paternalistic. So first off, you know, for the white folks that, that that Stokely Carmichael first made that command to, they had to trust, like the black-led civil rights movement has this in their own communities. We need to trust that they're going to organize to get folks to the polls. They're going to organize to get folks um, showing up to the protests. They're going to get orga- that, that, that we. They're, they're going to organize their own freedom schools and things like that. They don't need us to organize in black communities. And then the other bias you have to get across is this bias that. A, we aren't the problem, right? Uh, And the B, that we aren't negatively, and we, I'm saying white people and white communities aren't negatively impacted by our current relationship to other communities as well, right? So, you know, and I think that myth in particular has still persisted really, really deeply into progressive movements right now that, you know, I think, you know, at least out loud, people would say, oh, absolutely, we should not be paternalistic, we should not be colonialist, we should, you know, we should empower communities to have their own solutions. But when I come and want to talk to, for instance, like, you know, suburban white parents, I'm saying, like, you know, how stressful is your current relationship to your school system? Like, Like, perhaps, like, Are you stretched in having a longer commute or a higher mortgage because you thought you had to go to this school, this particular enclave for its schools, right? And now that you're there, there's another level of competition to keep up with the Joneses or things like that. How much better would it be, would life be for all of us if you could just trust that every school in America was a safe, loving place for all kids and that you didn't have to spend any mental energy thinking about where to send your kids to school, right? You know, or going to a rural white community and saying that, you know, for years, the politicians who have had the most time for you and who have at least placated saying we care for this community are the very same politicians who the thing that they've offered is protection from white people like me, right? White people that that they tell you are looking down on you or hating you um and that are 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 just want to restrict your freedom or liberty in one way or another. But what have those politicians have been doing? They've been restricting your rights to health care, they have been restricting your rights to clean water to clean air. They have been making it harder to find a good paying job. All of these different things that because our current relationship to the system is one of either scarcity, fear or protection. I use those two examples deliberately, right? Like suburban parents being like, ah, there's not enough good school seats to go around that are good enough for my kid. There are not enough opportunities to go around if my kid isn't at the top of the class and goes to this college and things like that. And so I need to fight for every little bit of hierarchical protection for them, or, you know, folks in rural, more conservative areas being being sold the idea that politics is just about protection from other groups of people who are going to look down on you or who don't trust you in one way or another. It's that kind of scarcity and that kind of fear that has typified white life for the entire history of our country and still right now makes our lives way crappier. So like this idea that you have to accept that like, yes, we should be involved in justice movements out of empathy, out of love, out of accountability for the harm we have caused, out of actual respect for black, brown, indigenous communities. And on top of that, we need to have conversations that we're not used to having at all on the fact that, like, it is not just harm being done in other communities by our current relationship to scarcity, racism, etc. It is our own communities and our own lives in very, very, like, distinct, meaningful ways that are also impacted badly about this. So the problem its not just like the problem that we have caused is someplace else. The problem we've caused is here, too.
0: And one of the ways that you're attempting to address some of the, what you've seen is through the Barn Raisers Project. And I'm wondering if you could give folks a little overview of what that project is and, and why it matters and sort of who are the folks that might want to attend what you're up to?
1: Barn Raisers Project right now lives in particular in trainings and support that I give to white folks across the country. Uh, and there's some different forms it's likely to take in the future. But right now, the main way that folks get involved in Barn Racers and the, the way I got to know you, for example, Ryan, is they show up for right now what are virtual trainings. Uh, and the folks who show up, this is my favorite part, um, about this is that I just kind of put this invitation out starting in July of 2020 and then I have now, I'm now in my fourth set of 10 of week cohorts. And the greatest delight in my life is that when I decided you know, I had a vision for this idea before that was like, I go seek out the activists and organizers that I go to a community that's got an issue they're working on, either they, you know, in Idaho right now, where they're trying to get a big school referendum passed, or in, uh, in, in different communities where they're trying to change zoning laws to make them more affordable housing or things like that. I would go to that place, find what white people were in the way, find, find out organizers who wanted to work with them. And so that I was going to, already like, you know, I was making the decision about who I was going to work with, who I was going to train, who I was going to add capacity to, right? And then I, you know, last summer, you know, sitting in my own house and watching all this demand for white people to do something, and a lot of people feeling really lost, I said, this training model that I've developed, why don't I just offer it to anyone and see who shows up? Um, And that's been such a delight. So the folks who join are the vast majority of them are, are white, but otherwise they don't have a whole lot in common in a way that I really, really love. I have had 17 year olds to 80 year olds, uh, join the cohorts. I have had, um, you know, everyone generally themselves think of themselves in one way more on the progressive than conservative side, but their networks vary dramatically. I've got folks who are in very, very conservative, uh, communities either in, uh, the rural Northwest or the rural South. I've got folks like you, Ryan, live in like the, you know, most classic kind of progressive enclaves as possible, right? Um, I've got folks who are super well off to folks who are living paycheck to paycheck, and everyone in between. Um, and but all of them, what's been cool is the common bond, if there's a common, if there's a, a median barn raisers member, it's somebody who feels something pretty similar to the angst I felt, which is, been trying. I have been reading the right books. I have I, I give money, give the money I can where I can. I tried. I've show, showed showed off the protest when I was asked to, but there is, if not an emptiness, at least an incompletion in the puzzle somewhere for me. And my sense is that has something to do with how little I see myself and other white people specifically moving. And it's that desire for help with that that folks join the cohorts. So the cohorts, I say, 10 weeks, and we five of which we spend in class, uh, five of which is spent in some version of homework. And then I kind of had just this open invitation for all sorts of other support, coaching, et cetera, that I give to folks if they want it on top of that. And we cover a few different things, some of which we, some of which is kind of thinking through the nuts and bolts of, okay, let's look at your community. What kind of big projects or ideas are Black, Brown, Indigenous organizers trying to work on, right? Are there, you know, demands for reparations in your area? Is there, uh, is housing and affordability a really big issue? Are there school issues that you can connect with, environmental justice issues that, that you can connect with? So what would it look like to listen to and learn from what folks who have really great visions for change where you live are already asking for and to learn from there what are some of the specific ways right now that white people and particularly potentially white people you might be connected to might be in the way right um that you know perhaps we're trying to move this bill through the state legislature but there's a few key districts that are majority white that those folks aren't budget so there needs to be electoral organizing in those places or policy-based organizing in those issues or you know i've worked with with folks where there's a school district with a Big dream for equity, but they are really worried that white parents are going to mutiny if they don't get to send their kids just to three schools. So working with white parents in that district is really important. So identifying what's the big dream? What way white folks are in the way? Um, and then once you've kind of like, I, I help folks think through the broad outline of a campaign like that. The next step is, uh, is then thinking through psychologically, you know, what are our holdups about Working with and spending a lot more time and a lot more patient time with other white people because I use the term organizing and organizing in any context requires actually, you know, being committed to another person and another person's potential enough that you don't just yell at them or don't just, uh, don't just tell them what you think, but that you get a sense for their fears, their values, the things that are on their mind. Um, so we, you know, which is, Easier said than done in any context, but in particular, pretty extremely easier said than done when you're talking about white folks who you are currently pretty pissed off about their current relationship to racism with, right? Like looking at a a parent that is very clearly, selfishly, just fighting for their own kid, right? Or looking at a a church in the suburbs that uh, says it, you know, it loves all people, but who is afraid to say Black Lives Matter. Like, understandably, you should be pissed off when you see that. And so how do you hold that anger and righteousness at our racism while holding enough patience, grace, love, and interest in the potential of other white people that you can keep coming back to them, right? And then, you know, from that, we think for the mechanics of how to actually do that what does an organizing conversation look like right um and so in 10 weeks and only five sessions you know one of the things i'm discovering right now is that it is it is a first taste of that way of thinking for a lot of my folks. Some folks have taken that and run with it and started campaigns that are just like blowing my mind of what's happening. Some folks are still like, they've gone through the training, are still thinking through, huh, what do I think about this? What am I gonna do with this? And they're still looking for their opportunity. I'm excited by both of those things, quite frankly, because this is a combination of, I think we have a need within white communities for both more action and a different type of reflection. And if the cohorts can be a space to spur both of those things, I'm really excited about it. So that's the main entry point for folks right now. And then in particular, folks who started projects or need more support. And I, I think of myself just kind of like water for them, right? Like wherever you need me, I'm going to flow uh, because um, it's really, really hard, lonely work trying to send that 15th email to get people to come to your meeting or have another conversation with your uncle who seemed like he was making so much progress and then turned on Fox News and went the other direction so i, I just want to stick anyone who commits to saying oh i'm going to try this hard, hard work i want to i want to be in their corner so that's the big part of what i do
0: i love it are there any um success stories maybe there's one person who came and and you've sort of seen their project sort of come to you don't have to use names if you want to maintain privacy but just has seen a, like a big change happen
1: that you could maybe
0: highlight for folks
1: I'll try to tell a few quick examples to give kind of different scales, right? So, you know, here where you live in the Bay Area, uh, I've had... Actually, a cool conglomeration of folks from different cohorts find each other, and obviously, housing issues are so huge in the Bay. And the question, in particular, of who benefits from the just steroidal rise in housing prices over the past few years, and who didn't benefit, in particular, in communities like Oakland that were, you know, traditionally you know, traditionally black and are are, are no longer so. Um, and so, there's a really really cool reparations campaign specifically targeting folks who have personally white people who have personally benefited from the real estate market, who uh, have saw their property value accrual over time or who were able to sell their property for more money. And so I, what I like about that is, you know, lots of things we're asking white people to give money to, to, but this really, really connects it, has connected residents who got involved with it with a broader story, right? That it's not, we're just giving money because we feel guilty, but how what what is this giving this money to black homeowners in our area um, and studying the issues around it? What does that make us think differently for the way that for folks who still live here, but who don't like the way that we have been beneficiaries of a system that we want to usurp? What does that mean for our next step? So that's a really really cool project I love. Um, you know, on the other side of the country, I've had a couple different moments of teachers join the cohorts together in a given school district. Um, and the uh, one of my favorite ones, a, a set of teachers in suburban a suburban Minneapolis district that is rapidly uh, diversifying in a really really cool way. But that it has done so, it has been diverse but non-integrated schools. Um, so the kind of school where white kids disproportionately get shuttled off into gifted classes, black kids get disproportionately shuttled off into special. Special ed classes, um, and you know that that happens over ten years. You get a lot of teachers who specialize in being pretty good at teaching in that current system, right? Uh, gifted teachers who have a wealth of curriculum in that world. Special ed teachers who know the world. Uh, uh, homeroom teachers who I you know implicitly kind of like having. The kids with different, quote unquote, different needs going in different directions and things like that. And so I had a set of, set of teachers bring to their district proposal to get rid of that tracking and to do team teaching and integrative teaching, um, where the skill sets, the special ed teachers, the gifted teachers could be provided to heterogeneous groups of students, both in terms of the way that they've been tracked academically, whether that's fair or not, but in particular to make sure that there's any racial integration in the classrooms. And what was cool was both that they that the district agreed to this, they were able to get the change, but they identified that some of the key work was gonna come after that change happened, right? That just because the superintendent had said yes didn't mean that there wasn't still going to be some very real fears and holdups um, to the, uh, amongst the teachers who were in the system. And that didn't make those teachers bad people. But sticking with and being able to make space in faculty meetings for the fears folks had, really still like lean on the expertise and make sure that these teachers felt like valued practitioners was a key part of making sure that that wasn't just a change on paper, but it actually happened. And I was really proud that they did that in particular that they did this last year because they had to hold the feelings of a set of teachers who were going through a major awesome change that they were choosing to make at the same time that there were so many awful changes they were not choosing to make that they also had to navigate. So those are just a couple examples of folks that have been really proud of what they've been doing.
0: I'm really glad you mentioned both of those. And I I want to sort of get connected with the Bay Area group and then learn about this second one because I went to a magnet school. So it was... Fifteen to twenty percent white students bust into a majority POC school, and but then once you were there, it was like AP English, AP Math, AP History, and like you saw the local kids in in PE, and then maybe at you know in, in the soccer team, it was like okay, now I know some some folks who are local, and maybe like assemblies, but not it was like, diverse, but internally segregated, which is sort of getting at like integrated schools, but it sort of needs to be a a deeper level, right of that level of integration, it
1: really points to the idea that of why one needs actual organizing, because on paper, right, a district made a decent decision, right? They were trying to, you know, in in your case, I know a lot of schools like that. In fact, you know, I, well, I grew up primarily in Montana, my family, my family, my family moved from rural Montana to uh, suburban Maryland uh, when I was in um, middle school, in particular. And we lived in Columbia, Maryland, which was uh, a designed suburb to be kind of an integrated dream suburb. Uh, it was specifically planned by this guy Jim Rouse with this vision that, like, all of the sins of America could be like, like, with the right planning, that we could build the perfect mix of low income and market race housing in, in, a, in a city, and all the schools. Schools would be integrated and things like that. Um, And the high school I was zoned to, we moved. We happened to have to move back to Montana right when I would have started high school. The high school I was going to go to, Wild Lake High School, was known as like this. Like it was, it was the idea, right? Like that this is going to be the integrated school. It took like five years before exactly what you you said happened in your school happened in Wild Lake, which is now it is the poster child for just like the stream, like in a really, really like frighteningly obvious way, the streams going in different directions in terms of black kids going to this set of classes, white kids going to this set of classes. And that's what happens when you rely just on the big policy idea at the top, right? Like if you just designed it the right way that we're gonna do the right thing, but white people are going to stick their cogs in the gears of the best laid plans, right? And not nefariously, right? Those patterns are developed that way, not because the white people all had a meeting of like, how do we mess this up? But because one by one white parents saw other white parents getting their kids into gifted classes, feeling like they were like gonna be left behind, having all of these fears about their own relationship to school, their kids' relationship to school, their relationship to a meritocracy, et cetera. White teachers uh found themselves uh with you know, with their own implicit biases about, you know. What meant for giftedness in one student versus what meant for a problem student in another student, those were never corrected. Um, and that's why, like, if we're going to correct that, right, we both need to get white people who are more ready to advocate for Integrative and reparational and just policies. But you also have to, the, the organizing is key because you have to get white folks who trust each other enough that they can have real conversations on saying, listen, on paper, I'm down for this justice thing, on equity thing, but I'm going to say the thing I really feel right now, which is like, I do want to care for all kids, but like, I'm kind of just want to care for my own kid. And giving the space for people to say that, to, uh, have the, problem of that raised, but also the dignity of the feeling behind that raised and to be a community that tries to move forward. That's that's the only way that we're not going to replicate these patterns. So this
0: is a, a meatier question that I was thinking about before our interview. I've had Resma Minikam on the show and he's talked about dirty pain and clean pain and sort of like how we need to move through our pain. You know, I guess the theory being dirty pain is like the pain that we that doesn't move through us. And we act out on others. And then there's like clean pain that we can sit with and sort of let it come out in a healthy way. And I think there's something similar with like dirty power or a clean power. So I think white folks can have, we have a, like a history of dirty power or just like this, this, like, it's sort of like, you know, it comes from like exerting control, causing harm, like power over. And so, as white folks are waking up, maybe I'll speak for myself, as I'm sort of trying to wake up from this legacy of, like, dirty power control oppression, I find myself actually afraid or deeply uneasy with, like, having power as a white person. It's like, I don't want it because it's it's bad. And so I'm curious, what do you think it means for a white person to hold, like, a soulful, grounded, authentic, to like hold authentic space or hold a vision for collective liberation that centers black and brown voices, but also requires us to have, to like stand in authentic power at the same time.
1: That's such a great question. I'm interested when you say like you have a fear of holding power, like how does that, like, what does that mean for you? How does that manifest?
0: Like, I think the things that I know intellectually are things like don't take up space we've taken up space for centuries you know make room for black and brown voices you know center other people don't center yourself especially as a white cis male and so i'm like very hyper sensitive to ever taking up space because i've known that my you know archetype has taken up space in so many ways and continues to do so and so and yet i think that i'm not showing up in the ways that I need to, because I'm not in relationship with like a clean, grounded set of like power in a way. I'm, I'm just curious how, if you see that too for white folks and like what, yeah, what comes up for you around that?
1: Oh yeah, I absolutely see it for other folks and and definitely see it for me too, right? And we will ebb and flow between moments when I trucking along and, you know, with this work, for example, I feel like I'm, I'm finding finding the white people I am, I, who are seeking out a project like me and being useful for them and that feels right. And that are moments that I just feel really, really ashamed of either the space I take up and actually as Garrett Bucks, right? Like, and think about like, ooh, last time my voice got that big and I you know as an executive director, you know, teach for America, Milwaukee and stuff like that, like I cause a lot of pain and I'm going to, the, you know, if I if I step into another space where I have another leadership role, I'll just do that again. Or when I, I feel understandable shame and hurt and guilt for the broader legacy that I'm a part of in terms of the role that white, white cis men in particular have played in shaping a world just to our own desires, um, dif- And not caring one lick about the harm we've caused other people. So of course I ebb and flow in the same way, right? And so I think that when I am at most productive, right, in in holding the gift of that without being overwhelmed by it, and you know, I start by asking myself, what is the gift of that feeling, right? And the gift of that feeling is a is a feeling of caring about harm, and caring about being in accountable relationships with other people. And also there is, on the creative side, the cool thing about starting to try to learn how to take up less space is that you are delighted about what other people can put into the world, right? Um, And so trying to hold those gifts and saying like, I'm trying to align towards making sure I'm taking responsibility for harm I've caused and will keep on causing. And I'm just going to get jazzed about like (laughs) models for activism, models for writing, models for talking, for thinking, for leading that are coming from other communities. Um, So I'm going to hold those two things. And if I align towards those, then, but try to then set a boundary of saying that that's where, that's where the, like... I'm going to keep aligning towards those, but I'm not going to keep on performing the flagellation beyond that. I think that's when I protect myself not only from overflagellation, but I also... I, I, I don't make the performance of care and harm and delight in others than performative of look how little space I'm taking up and look how little harm I want to cause. And this is going to be kind of a funny metaphor, but when I, when I first, you know, when you go back to, you know, being a a boss at nonprofits and and having people come and give me feedback, um, you know, I, I got really, really into like, I'm going to be non-defensive taking up feedback, taking feedback and things like that. And I, I would have these people i'd later learn like a few months of me like okay tell me everything i want to know stuff like that that like folks saying garrett we don't want to give feedback to you anymore and i was like why and they're like well and i'm like i'm really trying to take it like is because i'm like i'm not trying to be defensive like they're, they're, they're saying it's not that so like it's just such a tiring meeting because like you're like make such a big deal about like how much you 're listening and how sorry you are, and like how much care and stuff like that, when really what we want to be at is just like, yo, Garrett, you did this thing. this is what repairing that harm would look like. this is what i 'm really dreaming of in terms of what I need in this space in this relationship. Can you just go do that, and then beyond that, live your life, man, <laughs> like you also you 're a human being who also can get to create and have dreams and connect with other people, and who 's not good at some things, but is also good at some things that we need. So go and do. So I try to remember that kind of line of feedback when I said like, okay, I do care about the harm. I'm not becoming, not that I'm going to say like, you know, haters going to hate. I do care about just trying to spending as much creative time and energy and making sure that I'm looking to and learning from other folks. And then after I do that, I'm going to trust that if I am aligned to that pretty decently, that I'll be able to repair harm I caused, that I'll continue to walk walk with an appropriate level of lightness. But then it's still time for me to be out here being a human and doing my work too.
0: And I think there's almost this layer of, like, it sort of ties to the problem we're trying to address in white communities, which is... If there's not a relationship to like authentic or clean power or sort of rootedness, men, white men and women start to seek out that in like Jordan Peterson or, you know, like right wing, Trump will offer you that the feeling of power, like you're not like you're you're strong, like you're like, don't back down from anyone. And it can sort of like that feeling that we all feel is going to be filled by something. And it's sort of like, how do we sort of hold the space strongly and like with like a fierce compassion, but also like not have it tip into back to that dirty side. I don't know if I'm really being clear to you, but.
1: Yeah, no, no. I I love that you said that. And you said in the context of like, that others will articulate like power, but I'm going to use that term just like if we don't do it as white people who are desiring a better world, and by it I mean if we don't offer models for white people to sit down and say, "Huh, there's a particular feeling that I'm having of being identified as white in this moment," um, then the grifters and the bad faith actors are are more than happy to take that from us, right? And uh, what I mean in particular by like this feeling of being white in this moment is that you know it, it is a Fascinating, uh, club that we're part of, that we both asked to be a part of and did not ask to be a part of, uh, to be identified as white in 21st century America, um, because you are part of a completely made up group, right, that only exists as an identity in order to consolidate power, uh, power, privilege, and over the course of time to do violence and harm to people. So you're a, it is a completely fictive category. That has been very real for hundreds of years and for the entire history in particular of the country we live in, um, and has metamorphized and welcomed folks in specifically to keep its power. Um, and because of that, we have a shared experience. We shouldn't, our, our category should not exist, but we do, which means that if you've got a group that has a shared experience, that means that you've got a group that's going through something, right? That, uh, has a, set of emotions that are, for instance, like how do you process our relationship to our past? How do you um, balance, exactly the conversation we're having right now, balance that you do recognize that like, oh, to have a truly, truly just world, we probably need to take up less space. You know, our human beings who deserve a certain dignity and space and voice too. So how do I balance how much is too much and how much is too little? Those are really like, those are really, really important questions, and they aren't more important questions than the space that uh, black folks deserve to have to process their realities in this country than indigenous folks need, Asian folks, Latinx folks, etc. but it's a real conversation. And what we often offer each other in this moment is that the only thing we offer each other is self-effacement, right? Saying like, your only job as a white person is to shut up your only job is to elevate the voices of others. Your only job is to give up. All those things we need to do, but if it's saying that's the only thing we do as white people. No wonder we see a lot of white folks that I think could be potentially down to be part of movements for liberation, instead being really, really intrigued by people who tell them, hey, all those people with the CRT who are telling your kids that their history is something to be ashamed of, don't be. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. Or who are saying, like, everyone who's saying that white people are causing the – that the white cops are the problem are are ignoring black-on-black crime and don't actually care about this. Or they don't care about abortion and and, and black babies and, and, and all the above. That You're actually the righteous ones, and we're part of a righteous team that actually cares about the right stuff. Um, That the bad faith actors are going to step in. They're more than happy to. Uh, and they're going to have an easier time organizing than we are because they're organizing to protect the current system as it is. So they're already going to have a leg up. So goodness, if we're not even willing to create a space where, and by the way, when I say a space in particular, I mean a pretty homogeneous space that <laughs> black, brown, indigenous folks, if they do not want to have to hear us go through our stuff, don't have to deal with hearing stuff, because it's probably going to be pretty annoying. But if we're not willing to create that space at all, then what are we doing? You know,
0: you know, one of the questions we like to sort of moving towards the end is ask, what do you need right now? And how can the listeners help you grow the the next
1: economy? Mm, I need a couple things on a practical level. I'm, I'm trying to rebuild community right now uh you know, I, I started the story by saying that i um that my story really came from came from a journey of trying to run away from other white people uh and because of this realizing that I wasn't really being useful in building a better world and I want to live my life being as useful as possible for helping build a better world. And I realized that I want to do so, uh, I have more energy to do so, and I have more fun doing so, and I learn a whole lot more the more, and I'm, I'm in community with other white people. So on a practical level, I want to keep learning with a whole lot more white people, right? Uh, and uh, that means that I would love every time I offer a cohort, uh, and I'm sure you'll you'll be kind enough to share in the episode description some links to how people can sign up and learn the next time I'm going to offer one. I'm, I'm in the middle of ones right now, and I haven't decided when the next dates are, but yeah, we'll make sure it's easy for you all to sign up and join. Um, and for folks who are engaged my writing uh, and engaged with me in community in that, it's another way that I can keep connected. The folks. Um, so that's the first gift that folks can do for me is I am trying to be not just help other people be more in community with other white people, but selfishly, I want to be directly in community with other white folks. Um, and that community is both the ones I give gifts to. And I keep doing this work because that community then uh, comes back to me and says, here, here here's, here's either our time, energy, promotion, money, etc. to do that. So if you want to be part of my community and join up, um, that'd be really helpful to me. But then more broadly, Oddly, I hinted at this earlier. I want more communities of white people who care about liberation with each other. So the other thing you can do helps me a lot is just start thinking through what, what's your own story in terms of uh, identifying where the problem is when you care about building a better world. What your role has been, uh, what your role has been in relation to other people, other white people in your life, uh, and, you know, family members in terms of, uh, you know, co workers, in terms of neighbors, et cetera. And why is that? What fears are behind that? Uh, what shame and resentment and, and attempts to cleanse are behind that and all the above? And what would it look like? To turn the other direction and say the people I've been running from are actually the people I'm kind of responsible to. So I ask folks, white folks, to do that. And I ask them, as they do so as well, to have that conversation not be one that myopically just draws us into each other, but that, as I said earlier, that you do so while you're also looking at your community and looking not just at the problems but think but looking at what activism led by black brown indigenous folks around me, and every community across the country has beautiful examples of it um is really, really amazing, and not just what are they asking for, but what ways are is their ability to truly create uh, the tapestry that uh, they're dreaming of going to be potentially waylaid by white people standing in the way. I mean, if you have a curiosity on both those levels, well, what's my relationship with other white people, and what great work right now might not get to be as great as it is because of us, then I think your, your gears are going to start turning. And so I, I I I hope more white folks are doing both those things.
0: And Garrett, just I'll also put in the show notes, but where can folks learn more about the Barn Raisers cohorts and then maybe sign up for your newsletter and places where folks can find you?
1: The easiest single place folks can go to is barnraisersproject.org, Barn Raisers Project. I think those are The spelling you're probably guessing is the right one for that. But barnraisersproject.org and the front page of that is going to have a little link in particular to the white pages, my newsletter, and to sign up for more information about the cohorts. And between those two things, I will be respectfully in your inbox (laughs) uh, to make sure that uh, you're keeping updated.
0: Yeah. And I I just want to give folks who are considering this a personal plug. I did participate in Garrett's course. This isn't just, you know, some... BS thing. This is real. And I really appreciated it. So thanks so much for joining, Garrett. And we'll, we'll have to get you back on with more success stories from,
1: from the course. Can't wait. It's been really fun. Ryan, really appreciate this.
0: Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.